0: Here's a few words with Adam McFadden of Firehouse Training. Hey Adam.
1: How's it going, Scott? It's
0: going well. Seems like things are still rolling with Firehouse Training through all the challenges of the pandemic. Why don't you give me an update?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Surprisingly, we've been quite busy at Firehouse Training during this pandemic. We had a very successful uh, specialized high-rise firefighting tactics course last week at our facility in Fergus. And we had quite a few members that traveled from as far as Ottawa, Sarnia, Windsor, and even Quebec to take part in our in-class socially distanced training program. Some of the things that we ran that day included some different hose handling techniques review on fire protection systems and high-rises, as well as reviewing the various procedures that major fire departments across North America use when it comes to tackling those kind of emergencies. We had some really good feedback, uh, as well as many uh, individuals that signed up virtually to take our recorded course. If any of your listeners out there are still interested in participating, feel free to contact us, and then we can offer them that virtual option as well. What's on for the next few weeks? Well, we're going to have a theme for November. We actually partnered up with a respiratory mask company called the TR2 through O2 Industries in Kitchener, Ontario. This particular mask is quite cool. It's actually been developed in collaboration with the emergency services and provides a better means of protection when it comes to working in compromised environments. So primarily the military and police services have used this before. But this kind of respiratory protection is a little bit more advanced than an N95 mask. A firefighter could wear it working around smoke, responding to medical calls, even during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a pretty cool mask. It's called the TR2. And to celebrate that promotion, we've actually started an initiative called the Tactical Training Month. So this month, we have a whole bunch of different training programs, both in class and virtual. We have a friend of ours, Pat Watson, who authored a book called Tactical Lockpicking, and he'll be running a Tactical Lockpicking for the Emergency Services free Zoom training program. And that'll happen at 8 o'clock on Thursday, November 12th. So if any of your listeners out there would like to register, feel free to contact us through social media or by email to check that out. We're also running a tactical ventilation and search operations course at our facility in Fergus. Some of the topics that we'll be covering there will be understanding flow path control for fire dynamics, a little bit of positive pressure ventilation tactics and rapid fire attack strategies, and also some vent enter search fundamentals. For those of you out there that aren't quite sure what that is, we'll be running a program on that. That program is going to be on Saturday, November 28th, and the cost for that is $245, and as always, launch is included. If anyone's interested in that, feel free to contact us to register, and I believe we're working on a virtual option for that too. So uh, for those across North America that are interested in participating, you still will be able to join us. And then, of course, the last event that we're running through our Tactical Training Month is a certificate program, again, from Pat Watson from Uncensored Tactical. So he'll be running a half-day program on tactical lock picking for the fire and emergency services. And some of the topics that he plans to cover will include selecting tactical gear What we could use as firefighters, we'll be dealing with different simple latches and deadbolt challenges, basic door bypass techniques, and even getting in and out of automobiles as well. That program's only $150, and again, it's a half day via Zoom. So check out our website for some more details on that.
0: Anything coming up with CBRNEU?
1: Tonight, we're actually running another surprise live virtual scenario with our friends at CPRNEU and Signal App. We're going to have a tank truck rollover of a suspicious chemical and just have the class figure out how they would mitigate that particular situation when it comes to a hazmat call. Hopefully, the students will consider tonight when it comes to dealing with this would be the type of personal protective equipment that you would use, some of the incident command structures that would take place at a call when dealing with police and paramedics and other entities on scene. Maintaining proper isolation distances and also proper decontamination techniques. Firefighters from the Florida HAZMAT team, as well as the HAZMAT team in New York State. We're looking forward to another fun event. And everybody that participates in any of our CBRNE university classes does receive a certificate of participation. As well, tonight, everybody's getting a free HAZMAT t-shirt, too. So looking forward to a great turnout there. And just another opportunity for firefighters from across North America to gather and join us for some excellent hazmat training.
0: Awesome. Looking forward to seeing it all roll out.
1: I'm looking forward to it as well.
0: Welcome to Multiple Calls episode 30. I'm Scott Hewlett. Do men belong in the fire service? Does that strike you as a ridiculous question? And if so, why? Has anyone ever even uttered it? Yet somehow the question, do women belong in the fire service, warrants an opinion. Why does the question exist at all? Because women are physically weaker than men? Is every man you have ever met in your life physically capable to do what is actually required by the job? Is every man in your own fire department even capable? Is it just assumed by them and by you that even though they have never even been faced with an actual challenging call, because of their sex they are innately capable, that they will rise to the occasion when the time comes? What stories are you telling yourself and others? Elite male athletes are overall stronger and faster than their elite female counterparts. But if elite athlete capability is the fitness expectation in our minds, then 99% of us should submit our resignations today. So what is it then? The most physically and mentally challenging calls we could run as firefighters are the measure. For everyone. Should women be in the fire service shouldn't be a question for conversation. And we need people that can do the job is a statement so obvious that we shouldn't have to fight for it. What we should be focusing all of our passion and energy into is waking up anyone that is playing fantasy firefighter. All firefighters, regardless of any trait category or rank that you wish to focus on, should be able to meet the physical and mental standard that is based on reality. Anyone that can't do that puts themselves, their colleagues, and the community in danger. Yes, this is a teamwork environment, but teams are made up of individuals, and there are tasks that our community can't afford the time for us to complete in teams because we physically can't do it on our own. Carry and operate a saw and auto-X tool, force a residential door, throw a 24-foot ladder, deploy and charge a hose line and flow and move at 10 feet, and complete a VES up to the location of the victim, just to name a few. We divide and conquer because the stopwatch is running, and there are situations that we can find ourselves in where it is on us as individuals to act and perform to protect or save the lives of our crew. It's all well and good to depend on the team until the team is depending on you. Weak is weak, and not fit is not fit. And we don't care about your opinion of others if you can't even do it yourself. Put up or shut up. My guest this episode, like many solid firefighters and captains, carried her own weight to earn her spot in the lineup. What she shouldn't have had to carry is the ignorance and arrogance of others. In spite of the weight of that additional heavy burden, she has not only thrived in the service, but found it within herself to help all of her fire family in their deepest time of need, even those that have tried to make her feel like she doesn't belong. Here's my conversation with Dina Ali. Hey, Scott. Hey, Dina.
2: Oh, I love your voice. It's the same as it is on the podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of you.
2: It's so calming.
0: I've been asked to record a meditation, actually.
2: Oh, I think that would be perfect. I think you'd be really good at that.
0: Oh, thanks. I might try my hand at writing one.
2: My friend Jay, I was staying at his house the day before teaching a peer support class, and he's really good at mindfulness and meditation. And I was like, hey, can I record you walking people through one? And that's how we'll open class up. And without writing it out, without planning it, he recorded an incredible nine-minute video. So I'll send it to you because I think it's awesome. Wicked. He totally winged it.
0: (laughs) Sometimes that's the best way to do things, right?
2: Yeah, I think so. How's your day been? Not bad. We had a, a dumb night last night. So I got home from work this morning and took a nap. I got up at 11 and I was in a fog. And then about twelve o'clock I was like, All right, I'm good now. So I'm glad we scheduled it for twelve thirty. It works out perfectly.
0: Whenever you plan anything the next day, you're destined to have a busy night.
2: That's how it always is. Like if I have nothing going on, you know, we'll sleep all night. But if I've got things to do and it's like a Monday where we usually aren't crazy busy, then we'll be up all night. So like if I have something to do, I'll tell my guys, I'm like, Hey guys, I just want to apologize in advance because we're (laughs) we're gonna be up all night.
0: It's on me, right?
2: Yeah, it's all my fault because I have shit to do tomorrow.
0: <laughs> are you ready to dive into this? Yeah. So tell me where you're from originally and tell me about your family and your upbringing.
2: I was born and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina. I didn't realize until like I was 30 that leaving home was okay. So now I'm a little upset at myself because there's like all these other places that I'd rather live in, but I'm totally settled here. My parents are from Palestine and they moved here in their early 20s. So I had the like all-American, non-American upbringing. They both had pretty decent jobs here, but they both had traditions and values from home that they were not going to let up on. So it was very unusual, like going to school and seeing and hearing how like most people lived and then coming home and, you know, um, having our lifestyle and um, our traditions and whatnot.
0: What really stood out to you?
2: North Carolina is kind of the self. Some people will call it like the Bible belt. And my parents are Muslim, so I was raised Muslim. And the way they raised me was like, you have to do this or you're going to hell. You have to live like this or you're going to hell. So my whole life, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this, this, and this, or I'm going to hell. And then I'd go to school and I'll never forget like an elementary school. We had a school resource officer and she was really cool. And I got to talking to her and I can't remember, but one day she was like, if you don't turn your life over to Jesus, you're going to hell. So I was just so confused because I had my parents raising me one way. I had all the people around me talking about another way. It's like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing right now.
0: So when that happened, did you rebel? Did you start challenging either of them? How long did that confusion go until you sort of settled into what you believed?
2: <laughs> About 30 years. <laughs> so, yeah, I struggled with religion most of my early life and early adulthood life because being a Muslim is not easy, especially being a female Muslim. Like You're supposed to be really, really modest. And I've always been a tomboy. So, I'd get in trouble for like the stupidest things, like wearing shorts, you know, like, oh my God, good Muslim girls don't wear shorts. And then I played sports. So, that was just frowned upon because most of my friends were guys. So, the way I was raised, like, I was always feeling like I was doing things the wrong way. So, then I looked at Christianity and I was like, man, Christianity would be so much easier for me. And that's where the moral dilemma for me lasted several years because. I was like, man, I can easily just become a Christian and everything will be so much easier. And then I realized, well, dang, if I'm doing it the easy way, then I'm really going to get in trouble religious wise. Back and forth confusion. There were several years where I didn't really practice any religion because I was just so confused and so frustrated because I just didn't think that there was like one power that divided a bunch of people. I was like, we're all the same. Like we're all from the same place. We're all going to the same place. My generation of young Muslims, we were raised with the very traditional old school hard fist rule. But now the young Muslim community and their mentors and leaders are just so much more open-minded. For example, they've invited me to speak several times. I won an award. So they're just so much more open-minded to being different and I'm just realizing now that it's just all about having faith and all about loving other people and not judging other people. So for me, it is much easier to be a Muslim because that's where my family is and that's where my cousins are. That's where I just feel that stronger connection.
0: That loosening up of the doctrine or dogma, however you want to see it, is probably the same across all religions now, I think. They need to draw people in, and there's way too much information available, and you need to change with the times whatever you believe can be translated into the area you're living in.
2: Yeah, and for me one of the things is your parents, they try to scare you into doing things. Like as I got older I realized some things that they were telling me was against my religion. It was just things they were telling me to keep me disciplined. So, as I got older and I started to research the religion myself, I started realizing how you can perceive it from one end of the spectrum to the other. So, you know, dressing modestly is what it asks for. It doesn't say you can't wear shorts just understand that sometimes you kind of have to read it your own way and make your own perceptions about what's right and wrong.
0: Were there any hard conversations with your parents at any point when you shifted away with that? And how is your relationship with them now?
2: Yeah, there were a lot of hard conversations. My relationship with my mom, as I shifted away, definitely just separated. She's just so traditional and relentless on that. So I was a huge disappointment to her and my coming to. And it's sad because our relationship shifted away in 2010, and we've never really built it back up. And it's crazy because my engine company is in my parents' first student territory. So two years ago, she got bit by Copperhead, and my dad called. We went there and took care of her. So it's a very unusual relationship. We definitely have shifted away, and we don't have a good relationship at all. But if my parents need me, I'm there, and I know if I need them, they're there. But unfortunately, my mom and I, our relationship really was severed in 2010 because of our views on religion, and we just haven't come together after that.
0: So were you athletic or hobby-focused as a kid?
2: I was a huge tomboy growing up and I still cycle today. Cycling's my thing. And it's funny because I picked that up when I was five years old, started riding a bike, and I just never stopped. I was always wanting to ride farther farther. And then as an adult, that just stuck with me. So um, cycling is my big thing. I played soccer in high school. I love basketball. I got cut from the team because they said I played too much streetball. I definitely love sports growing up.
0: You mentioned that you found yourself getting nicer and nicer bikes. Is that when you knew it was going to be an obsession?
2: <laughs> yeah. Like right now, I have two vehicles and four bicycles. And two of my four bicycles cost more than each of my vehicles. <laughs> I realized I definitely do have a problem. Like I drive a 2002 Chevy Silverado and a 2003 Mitsubishi Galant. They've been paid off forever. and I'm actually making payments on my new mountain bike right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you run as well?
2: I've had a very love-hate relationship with running my whole life. And just this past year, I think I'm going to just stop running. In college, I was good at running and I was running 5Ks and I was breaking personal records and doing awesome. And I even placed in a few 5K events. And for like the last 15 years, running has just been a struggle. I don't enjoy it. My body hates it. I'm not getting better at it. So I I think I finally got to the point where I'm like, why am I torturing myself? I hate this. I did CrossFit for several years and the gym I was going to was an awesome gym, but it was so awesome that they sent a few people to regionals and the year after it blew up. So you'd have to schedule your class like three days in advance. When it blew up, it turned me off. So I discovered about a year ago this programming called Street Parking. Have you ever heard of it?
0: No, I haven't.
2: Oh, it's so awesome. So a couple of uh, the firefighters I work with, they were doing workouts, and I would always see them post on Instagram, or I did trade times at their station. I would join in, and so they showed street parking to me. And basically, there was a couple who did CrossFit for years, and after their first child, they stopped doing CrossFit, and they turned their garage into a gym. And so that's where they got the name street parking from, moving the cars out on the street and turning the garage into a gym. So they started programming workouts for busy people. So every day there's a Metcon that's about 15 to 20 minutes. And then there's six accessories every week. So you can do two workouts a day, the Metcon and then an accessory. So they have power where it's a lot of deadlift, bench press and squat. And then they have the Olympic lifting once a week. And <laughs> They have this thing called sun's out, guns out. And they also have butts and guts. And then they have endurance. The endurance is actually fun because it's about three miles of running or if you want to do row, but it's intervals. So I've just really fallen in love with it. Yesterday's workout was only 13 minutes and I still have not regained my grip strength. It was so hard. It was 100 kettlebell swings and then 100 goblet squats. But every minute on the minute, you do four burpees. and. That doesn't seem terrible, but the kettlebell swing started to get really painful. The burpees got slower. And then when I got to the goblet squats, I was like, oh, this is going to be a break. Holding that kettlebell in front of me to do the goblet squats killed me. I love it. I love that they're just short workouts that you feel really accomplished when you're done.
0: It's amazing how much damage you can do to yourself in a short period of time. That's what the combat challenge and fire fit really taught me is that you can crush yourself in two minutes or less.
2: Yeah. And, and that's kind of why I enjoy it. Because at work, that's basically what happens is when you've got to do work, you can really crush yourself really quickly.
0: What was your school academic career path?
2: Like I said, I was a tomboy growing up. And as I was growing up, the TV show Cops was like a thing. And I thought Cops was the coolest show ever. Like if I was going to miss an episode, it got recorded. So I always wanted to be a police officer. So after high school, I went to college and I studied law and justice. And then I actually became a police officer for five years. And that's when the TV show Rescue Me started. So I ended up watching that show and then just kind of paying attention to the firefighters. Uh, I was like, man, I really went down the wrong path.
0: What burnt you out from the other job?
2: You know, it was just such a combination. One of the hardest parts of being a police officer is they run a lot of calls, but whenever they're dispatched to a call, it's maybe 98% of the time something awful has happened and there's nothing they can do to undo whatever it was that happened. You know, either somebody's car got broken in and stuff was stolen, somebody was assaulted. I felt like I was an insurance agent. Car accidents, you get there after the bad thing happened and all you really do is document it. So I was pretty self-initiated in that I like to stay busy. I was always trying to, you know, look for drugs or serve warrants. So I did a lot of traffic pulling over cars, especially at night, the weekend nights. I love looking for drunk drivers. And then that really will burn you out because whenever you pull somebody over, they're really pissed off. And even if they're wrong, very few people took responsibility. Most people are argumentative or they make you feel like you've ruined their life. So it just got really mentally draining for me. And then on top of that, the court system is absolutely frustrating here. It's overburdened they plead everything. But then when something does go to trial, what I saw was if you had money and you were able to get a good lawyer, you could do almost anything and get off. If you didn't have money and you couldn't get like a great lawyer, you could really get in a lot of trouble for something that wasn't even that awful compared to that person who got off. So I was taking a lot of it home and I just didn't feel good about the work that I did.
0: Having been on the inside of that, even just for that short period of time, do you have a hard time digesting what's going on in the culture right now in police?
2: It's really difficult to watch and comprehend because, first of all, I know a little more, especially about the training of law enforcement officers. So for each individual situation that's happened, I've watched and I've been able to say, man, like, you know, George Floyd, everybody can look at that and say, you idiot. What were you thinking? How could you have done that? But then there were a few other instances of situations and I was like, no, that officer did what they were trained to do. And I probably would have done the same thing, but you can't have a rational argument with anybody on that because if they don't have the training or the inside knowledge, uh, they can just never understand. You know, One of the things that we were taught was if you're ever in a situation and somebody could incapacitate you you've got to stop that threat. So with that knowledge, like if somebody is much larger than you and they are assaulting you, you may have to shoot and kill them. Nobody wants to do that, but you may have to do that to protect yourself and protect other lives because if you're incapacitated, they have access to your gun, they have access to your car and all that other stuff. So a lot of people don't understand that. And just watching on the news, some of the things said, it's it's frustrating. But unfortunately, there is that very small percentage of police officers who do wrong. And sadly, you know, One police officer like Derek Chabin that does something awful, he represents every police officer and it just makes it so much harder for them. It makes it really hard for the good guys to defend themselves.
0: Yeah, agreed. Kudos to people that still have that passion in them that even in this current environment want to start that as their career.
2: Yeah, I have the utmost respect for anybody who is looking to take this on as a career. And even when I left law enforcement, it was 2007 when I left, the decision I had to make for myself was either not to care so much. I told myself I could stay in this job if I just didn't care as much. And I remember thinking like, I have so much respect for the people who are able to stick this job out and care and not let it get to them. So I've always had just so much respect for anybody who's able to be a law enforcement officer because it is not an easy job. And, you know, whenever you meet and talk to police officers one on one, you just find out that most of them are just awesome people who are so caring and so sacrificial, like they're willing to put their lives on risk every day. Because I remember thinking I worked in a small suburb and it was a higher crime community. And we had these kids that were in gangs that weren't like real gangs. But what was scary about them was They took the rules from the real gangs. For example, like if you shoot a cop, you're automatically an OG. And I remember like sitting at night writing reports thinking, you know, all it takes is some 15 year old who wants to, you know, get status to walk up behind me and shoot me. So it's a job that I have so much respect for people who are willing to take that risk. And especially today, people who are willing to continue to do the job because we need them.
0: And I guess that really frames how you see your job now as there's no limit to the amount that you can care and how beneficial that is to you and the people you help.
2: Absolutely. You know, I'm happy I made the transition because, you know, our job really is a job that we have an opportunity on every call to help people or to make it a little better.
0: So in 2006, you mentioned starting to watch Rescue Me. In season two, they had a female firefighter. So talk to me about how that impacted you.
2: When I was in college, my college was right by a firehouse. And I remember seeing the firefighters. I remember stopping by every so often talking to them because the firehouse is near the college towns. All the firefighters sit outside. And now I know why. Um, But I remember, you know, I'd stop and talk to them a few times and they were just really cool. So I remember always having an admiration for them. But I also remember in the years after not ever considering that as a career path because I remember thinking that this is not for women. And that if a woman tries to insert herself in this career path, She's crazy because it's a man's world and she doesn't belong. So, when the show Rescue Me came out, it was on season three when I finally saw it. So, I was behind. But on season two, they had a female firefighter and I saw where she fit in. I saw where she had something to offer. She had skills that the guys didn't have. It's taken me years to see that you don't have to be the strongest, fastest, smartest because none of us have everything. We all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. And when we come together, that's when we become a strong team. So, you know, in the show, they did a good job of highlighting her strengths. And I was like, oh, my goodness, women can do this. And then I don't know how, but I realized that Raleigh Fire had a female firefighter who was pretty badass and pretty respected. So that's when I started to have that shift mentally. Like, that's a career path for me. And that, ironically, was also the time when I was really starting to get burned out from law enforcement and just not enjoying it. I worked in Garner at that time and the Garner firefighters were some of the coolest firefighters I've ever encountered. They were all family. So we would drop by the firehouse every now and then and you know, you'd see them eating together, watching movies together, helping each other in the afternoons, working on their cars or whatnot. And I just thought it was so cool how they worked together and how happy they were. And then especially on calls. If there's a call where, you know, I get there and my jobs to secure the scene, write the report, and the firefighters show up, they fix whatever's wrong and then they leave. And I was like, man. A little jealous. That's way cooler than what I'm doing.
0: What was the journey to getting hired like?
2: So for me, it was actually not too difficult. Ironically, in 2006, there was some lawsuits and it was on media where they were trying to increase minorities within the Raleigh Fire Department. On the news, they were just saying that there aren't enough women and not enough African Americans being hired. So when I first started thinking about it, there was like this big push to make the change. And actually, that push kept me from applying because I remember thinking, I don't want to get hired and then only have been hired because I was a minority. So I thought about it for another year. And so when they went to accept applications again the next year, at that point, I think I was on like season four of Rescue Me. And I really wanted to do it at that point because that show just made it look so awesome, which is funny. I kind of laugh at myself now thinking back that a television show inspired me to become a firefighter. But the next year they opened up Practice Agility Tests and We were doing the CPAP. You had to pass the CPAP to get hired. And so I went out to do the practice agility test and I failed because two things, the ladder raise, I didn't do it correctly and the rope just kept slipping between my hands. I couldn't get a good grip on it. And the gloves that I had on, it was just super frustrating. And then when we got to the push pull with the pike pole, this was after like dragging the dummy and hitting something with a maul. My arms were done. I had nothing left, so I couldn't do it. I was like 25 seconds over, and I'd given it my all, and I felt like I was in great shape. So I was like, "I'm screwed. There's no way I can do this job." But luckily, I knew a couple of firefighters because I was volunteering with an EMS organization, and they had some part-time firefighters working on their rescue truck. So they showed me a few tricks to grab the rope with my hand upside down and then twist my hand so it doesn't slip. Uh, and then with the pike pole, they showed me how to use my legs. So I did just a little training on that and went back when they were actually accepting applications. And that year. They had a ton of people apply, but I was the only female that passed the CPAT, And I knew I was going to get hired because it was the last day of the fitness assessment and not a single female had passed. And it was like Friday afternoon. And I knew that they were like getting frustrated. The chief of training was there. One of their administrative assistants was there. And after I passed, she like walked up to me and she was like, oh, we're so happy you passed. You're the only female. We needed that. So I knew then I was like, well, I guess I'm a shoe in So, uh, you know, finished the rest of the process and got on and started my academy that next January.
0: And what was the academy experience like?
2: It was pretty awesome. I think going through an academy after already going through an academy for law enforcement, I went through a residential academy and I went through the North Carolina Justice Academy, which was the best training in the state. I had gotten a scholarship in college and that's how I ended up in that program. And I remember when I was like 22 going through my first academy, I was so scared. And so I would do things last. I was afraid of failing. I didn't have enough confidence. I ended up always doing really well, but for some reason, I was just afraid of messing up. So five years later, going through another academy, um, I decided that I wasn't going to be afraid. I was going to volunteer first, and I didn't care if I failed. I was going to try. So it was neat having like a little more maturity and being able to like look at it more as something that's enjoyable and not something that's scary. I had a pretty good academy experience. We had two of the best fire captains in the city of Raleigh running our training academy. There were some great guys in the academy. One of them is one of my best friends now. He's married my cousin. I'm the godmother of their kids.
0: You mentioned to me that you spend a lot of time needlessly trying to prove yourself.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think that like started in the academy and went on because I had this idea in my head that I had to prove that like, I was as good as the guys. I was the only female in my academy. And then there weren't a lot of women within the Raleigh Fire Department at that point. I definitely cared way too much about proving that I was good enough. And then that's been something that's taken years to reverse or to realize that it's not my job to prove myself. It's just my job to be myself.
0: Yeah, there's a difference between doing things so you fit in and just being yourself and belonging.
2: No, absolutely. And that's something over the years, it's taken forever. Uh, Brene Brown, I love her work. And, you know, she talks so much about. The difference between fitting in and belonging. You know, when you're fitting in, you're not getting to be yourself. You're always trying to be what you think other people want you to be. And there's no meaningful connection there. But then when you belong, you're able to be yourself. And that's when the meaningful connection happens. And that's when real growth and relationships occur. I wasted a lot of effort trying to fit in.
0: It's a two-way street. The people that are around you have to have that same mentality. And I don't think that happens all the time in fire stations.
2: One mistake is, see, there it is. Women shouldn't be here, whereas a guy can make the same mistake and it's like, oh, they had a bad day. And so it is true that, unfortunately, women are held to a higher standard quite often. But of course, now I know it's not my job to care about that standard. It's just my job to do the best I can. And if I make a mistake, learn from it.
0: Yeah, and until you have that epiphany, you can be taken advantage of in a lot of ways.
2: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. A crazy thing with the guys when I first got on, they compared the women. Like I said, there weren't a lot of women when I first started, but I do remember often conversations where the guys would make comments such as, don't be like her, she just fits in because she's pretty and flirts. Don't be like her, she's a bitch. Don't be like her, she's crazy. Every female that was on, there was something that they were saying, don't be like her for this reason. And I remember listening to that stuff and trying not to be a flirt, not to be crazy and not to be a bitch. And uh, there's a lot of pressure to not be any of those things.
0: And that's all up to interpretation of how people want to take how you're acting.
2: Exactly. I don't know if you pay attention to any of the presidential debates going on in the U.S. right now. But last week, the vice presidential debate, they had Camilla Harris against Mike Pence. And I watched her assert herself and I watched her have to stand up for herself a lot because those debates are just ruthless. I would never want to be in one. And afterwards, so many people called her rude and they just really thought that she was being disrespectful. But the way I saw it was she was asserting herself, but she was also trying to do it with a smile. She was trying really hard to assert herself, but not show that it's bothering her. And I was proud of her for being assertive in that manner. But just seeing how many people criticized her, I realized how difficult it is for a woman to assert herself and not be criticized.
0: So much energy then is put into fretting every day when you're not working, every night when you're not working, and then while you're working to try and sort through all this when you should just be focusing on being good at the job.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've been a captain now for four years And I'll tell you, one of my greatest challenges is keeping my crew happy, but also putting my foot down. And then when somebody's not up to par, when they're not doing right, being able to correct them without hurting their feelings. And that sounds so crazy, but I can't be like the old school guys. I truly have to, when I correct the guys that I work with, I have to find a creative way to do it, be firm, be assertive, but also make sure that I don't emasculate them. It's absolutely crazy.
0: That is totally unnecessary.
2: (laughs) I've had a few times where I have to find another way. I can't just be as direct.
0: Maybe the guys need to figure it another way.
2: Right? No, trust me. I wish I could say that. Just take ownership of the mistakes and don't get mad if I point them out. It's that easy.
0: Maybe then it's incumbent on, say, firefighters like myself out there in the service to speak up. Not that you need anyone to speak for you, but to sort of break that repetitive cycle, that behavior,
2: that mentality. Exactly. No, you're absolutely right with that. The captain shouldn't have to be the one correcting the crew. If somebody's consistently doing something that's not up to par, the guys around them need to be able to speak up and hold them accountable.
0: As tough as guys want to make themselves out to be, and you know, firefighters can be the worst at this, we take a lot of things personally and get our feelings hurt pretty easily.
2: I didn't realize that, but I've learned that guys are just as sensitive as women. <laughs>
0: I noticed that even feeding back where things might've been missed on the shift before with trucks or equipment, we should just be able to have professional conversations about work and not take it personally, but it's so hard to do.
2: Or even making changes. That's something in the last couple of years I've seen. Right now I'm so lucky. I actually probably have, I think the best crew in the city. Like my guys are hardworking, self-initiated. They take ownership. Like I truly am so fortunate right now. And because of that, when they see something on the truck that isn't very efficient or effective they look for solutions they look for better ways a trash line on the front bumper they recently came up with a better way to deploy it some of the equipment they notice issues with and they've met a lot of resistance with the other shifts trying to bring about the changes one of my guys his last assignment they had an American flag on the back of the truck and he loved it and so he tried to get one put on our engine and one of the shifts they were like No, the flag blocks the brake lights and it's not safe. (laughs) And and sometimes I just think that people are looking for just an excuse to say no to somebody else. Just watching their initiative and watching them have to re-explain things and dumb things down and prove that, hey, this is better and we should give this a try.
0: And usually it's by guys that have done zero research and put zero effort in, in general. They just hear the idea for the first time and they instantly jump all over it.
2: Oh, yeah. My favorite line is, we've never gone to a fire that didn't go out. Why make change? And it's just like, golly, it's so sad to see people not care.
0: And let's just go back to bucket brigades then.
2: <laughs> right? I mean, they all went out back then.
0: Yeah, sure. Let's take away all the gear you wear and go back to what they used to wear, and we'll see how you like your job.
2: Right. I just read the book, Think Like a Monk.
0: Mm-hmm. You sent that to me.
2: Oh, I love that book. It was really good. I'm listening to the audio version now. just getting a little reinforcement, plus the author reads it. He talked about change and said that one of the reasons why change is so hard is because in order to have change, there has to be some sort of loss. You don't have change without loss. And we struggle with loss. We struggle with the grief of loss. And so even if whatever it was, wasn't the best, the idea of losing what we know and what we had makes change so difficult.
0: And because we very often attach it to our identity. If I have to let all these things go that I've believed for so long, then who am I? Was I wrong before?
2: Right. Yeah. And then, of course, always that little bit of fear of, will it work? Will I be able to make it work? So it's interesting. And then I think sometimes, too, we just get caught in our little habit loops and the path of least resistance. And sometimes you just don't want to change because it's difficult. You're just so used to what you've always done.
0: Tell me what your rookie years were like.
2: We just had a new chief that just started this month, and one of the first changes that he wants to make is the fact that we transfer people every three years, and the young people, the rookies, they were getting transferred quicker. So when I came out of the academy, I went to station one. It was our big house, and I was so fortunate. I was surrounded by probably some of the best firefighters in the city of Raleigh. I didn't know it at the time. I thought that it was like this everywhere. We had two engines and a ladder, so I was on engine one, Engine one was the competent guys who were a little more laid back, but like doing things the right way. And then engine 13 down there, they had some of the smartest people and they were like the thinkers. They were always looking for better ways to do things. They were always, you know, trying to figure out better ways. They're plugging numbers into formulas and trying to come up with solutions and change. And then the ladder truck down there had just the coolest, most badass, salty dogs ever. And all of them like to train. They like to go out every day and do some sort of train. They like to work together. So for me, it was awesome. I got, you know, the true new person treatment where if I didn't get to work first, for example, the driver on the ladder truck, if he beat me to work, he would talk junk all day. He'd bring the newspaper in, he'd make the coffee and he'd put up the flag if he beat me. He would make me feel so guilty. He's like, I got it, new girl. I got the flag up for you since you you took your time. And granted. Shift change was at 8, and I was getting to work at 7, and sometimes, just to be funny, he'd get there at 6.50. But it was cool. It was just all in, like, good love. At the dinner table, he would eat so fast, and then he'd get up and stare at me as he went to the dishes. So, of course, he made me start eating super fast. That way I didn't have to throw away my food. But then, you know, the transition uh, was awesome because, you know, I'd wash dishes a lot. So then before I knew it, like, they were fighting to get me out of the dishes. So at that point, I knew I was earning my respect. And I was starting to be part of the team. I had a big bucket of water dumped on me one day when we all took a crew picture after getting ready for truck inspections. And the guys that worked at Station One with me back then, those are some of the mentors that I still talk to and reach out to. They definitely have had the most lasting impact on me. So, like I said, we were getting transferred a lot. After 10 months, we had another academy graduate. And so I got transferred. And I went from the downtown big house to one of our firehouses that was not completely slow, but it was much slower, It's about 11 miles away from downtown. So it was a sad transition for me. It was to Station 22. It was just a lot different. It wasn't some of the same old school mentality pushing each other. It was still a relatively decent environment, but I constantly got reminded, you're not downtown anymore, you know, you could slow down. So I had to make that transition of, you know, just slowing it down. And I remember once one of the guys got on me because he was like, You know, you got to stop like trying to outdo everybody and do everything. You know, just making that transition from the way I was raised to the way it was in this house.
0: I guess the fires aren't as bad on the out halls.
2: (laughs) Right? (laughs) Which actually, when I was downtown, we had a bunch of room and contents fires. I never had what I felt was a real fire. In fact, the day the new person, which was me had to go to the convention center for like some display. They had an awesome fire where they saved two people. So when I got done doing the display, I had like a piece of burnt wood in my gear and got to hear all their stories. So the whole time I was downtown, I had, you know, just very small room and contents, nothing nothing to write home about, nothing to make me feel like I had earned my status as a firefighter. But then when I went out at 22, I think it was like two months later, we had probably one of my most memorable fires, like when we got there. And luckily, my captain was off that day because the captain I had would never have gone interior. My driver was stepping up as a captain. and He was pretty aggressive, old school. So when we got there, I mean, there were a lot of rooms involved. It was a lot of fire. And we went like right on in. And I remember just looking around and being surrounded by fire. And it was awesome.
0: It's crazy how that's such an amazing feeling.
2: Oh, man. Yeah. Well, especially I think as a new person, getting in there and getting it done and realizing that you got this and there's nothing to be afraid of. And yeah, it's weird for me. I don't know how to explain it or why, but there's almost a calming feeling. And maybe mentally we make ourselves have that calming feeling. When you walk in, there's a lot of fire. You kind of just have to slow down, take a few deep breaths and say, all right, I got this.
0: It brings everything into sharp focus. Only one thing to do in that moment. It simplifies it.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. So that very first real fire of mine, it was 2009. And I can still close my eyes and visualize what I saw when I went in there. I remember one of the things was the wires arcing. And I remember wondering, like, am I going to get electrocuted? I'll never forget what it looked like. And it's amazing how that happens.
0: What was your first promotion?
2: My first promotion was January of 2014. And that was to driver. Now granted, before that, we were promoted to assistant driver, but that was not a competitive process. It was just after three years online, you know, everybody gets that. But the first competitive promotional process was to driver, which we call our driver's lieutenants. And in the absence of their officer, they step up and they fill in. So again, I was back in that time of proving myself. So not only was I studying for that test, but I was studying to be the best on that test. And I did it. I scored really high on the written And then I like aced the pumping practical and I ended up being third overall. But then after they took in service points, I dropped down to six. So I I did really well. And I I did testing in October and I was promoted in January.
0: And then when you decide to rate for captain.
2: After making lieutenant, that's when that's when things kind of changed for me um, at the fire department. So I'd gotten that promotion. I was really proud of myself. I thought i achieved something really awesome and earned respect. And my first promotion to lieutenant, I went out to a slower house. And I hated it at first because nobody wants to get promoted to a new position and go somewhere slow. But I ended up realizing I had like a really good group of guys there with me. And my captain was one of the most respected captains on the city of Raleigh. But unfortunately, he was a year out of retirement and he was having knee problems So even though he was like a legend, by the time I got to work with him, he was like slowing way down, but it was still really cool getting to work with him. About a year into that, they did some movements of our companies and I was on a special operations company, but they didn't like that that station was so far. So they moved it. And with that, I got moved. And I guess that's when I realized that when I made Lieutenant, I'd actually developed Haters. Because up until then, I was still like living this wonderful, blissful world of having a really awesome job, working with really awesome people, having a lot of friends. And when I had this transfer, that was my first experience working with somebody who didn't like me, didn't want to like me, and had influence on others. So I really struggled with it. You know, he was just awful. He wouldn't speak to me. He talked about me. He mocked me. And then what was crazy was the other guys in the firehouse kind of followed his lead. And I almost felt like I was suspected in a criminal trial and I was having to like prove my innocence every day that like I'm not a piece of shit and I belong. So that was the time period for me when depression hit, you know, because I came to work every day with this positive attitude of, man, I'm going to prove to them that I'm not a piece of shit, that I belong and I'm here for the team. And then every day I'd go home feeling worse. Things got worse, like something happened or pissed somebody off with something. Once it was going to be a really, really busy day. And I thought I'd be helpful. So I was like, I'll just wash the truck real quick by myself while they're cleaning the bathrooms. That way we have that knocked out. And a couple of guys got pissed at that. They're like, Why are you washing the truck by yourself, man? That's really rude. You know, like very, like stupid small things. But during that time, I was a complete outsider. They'd come into work after a four day break and You know, talk about a concealed weapon class that they all took together, or they would laugh about your group text. Half of them were very polite, but I didn't feel accepted. Like they were polite, but they weren't friendly, if that makes sense. And then there were two that were just plain hateful. And one of them was more outwardly hateful than the other one. It was a tough time for me. Uh, That was when I had my first experience as an adult with severe depression, which at the time I didn't know that that's what that was. I thought that my thyroid was jacked up because I was really tired and always wanted to sleep and had no energy. But after putting the pieces together, I realized that it was depression. And that was also the time where I thought about suicide from everything that was happening. So I'll never forget the fall of 2016. The guy on my crew that was just a complete jerk, he had done something really shitty that day. And my captain talked to me and he was like, hey, you know, I see what he's doing. I see you don't deserve it just keep doing what you're doing and it'll all be fine. And, you know, I understood what he was doing. He's trying to let me know that, yeah, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I didn't deserve it. But he didn't realize the message he was sending to me was I wasn't worth him standing up for me, that he didn't value me enough to protect me from this behavior. He just wanted to, you know, have a nice, peaceful, quiet day. And so the message he sent me was just that I wasn't worthy. And that sent me a little further into depression, but I guess it also put me on this mission. You know what? If you're not going to stand up for me, then I'm going to not be in an environment where I have to rely on a captain to stand up for me. I'll just take the test and get promoted myself. Ironically, the previous captain's test, they didn't have enough people pass. So they actually gave it a year early. So I shouldn't have been eligible to take it, but it just so happened that they needed more captains. And I just made the eligibility cut. So I studied hard and got promoted and got myself out of that environment.
0: It blows my mind that we walk into the walls of a fire station and these interactions happen and somehow these negative aspects of the culture snow us so bad that you just can't look at somebody that says that to you and say, you're a coward. (laughs) Right. And if you're a coward in this situation, how are you going to behave in real situations? And I want the fuck out of here.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's the difficulty of, at least for me, always feeling like I'm playing chess. I guess I'm always looking at situations as battles and wars. And a lot of times I see most of them as battles. Is it worth the fight? And a lot of times I decide that it's not worth the fight. I want to save that for when it's necessary. But no, you're right, because sometimes we let things go. I would have killed to have called him out. You are a freaking coward. You know, you suck. But luckily, during that time, my battalion chief knew everything that was going on. And my battalion chief was actually one of the captains when I was in the academy. He's great at his job. At this point, he had been promoted to battalion chief, so he'd known me since the academy. So I confided in him a lot. And I was grateful to have that opportunity to do that because a lot of the times when I confided in him, I was like, what is wrong with me? Why is this happening? What do I need to change? How can I make this stop? And he consistently would tell me that there's nothing wrong with you. You're doing a good job. You're a good firefighter. You're a hard worker. You're a good person. They're intimidated by you. And they've been contaminated by whatever they've heard. And it's their problem, not yours. So I was so grateful to have him. And then he also reiterated multiple times, your captain doesn't know how to deal with personnel problems, so he avoids them. And it's his problem and not yours. Perfect leader. Right. But I was grateful to have that chief and to have the relationship with them to where I knew that at any point I could go to him and say, Captain is doing this, take care of him. And I I knew that he would because he'd do his job. But I was grateful to have him more as a confident in those times. Because I think for me, that was just more meaningful to be able to tell him, this is what I'm experiencing and it hurts. And I feel like it's my fault. And for him to be able to let me know that it's not my fault and I don't deserve it. And not to create a bigger fuss, but to help motivate me to get promoted.
0: So what pulled you out of the depression and the suicidal thoughts? And how did that lead to your work in peer support?
2: It was a definite long and unconventional path. And now with all that I know, I could have really alleviated a lot of pain and a lot of months of struggle by finding a therapist to talk to. Now I always preface with that. My path out was definitely a great path but it was a slow and painful path out. And I wish that I had had the courage to find a therapist sooner. It would have just made such a big difference for me. And it's amazing how things just come together and how timing on things happen. I had started graduate school when I had first made driver. And again, I had gone to that really slow station. So I just need something to keep me stimulated. So I just wanted to challenge myself by giving graduate school a try. I didn't know if I'd even be good at it or if I'd be able to survive, because I'd been out of school for 10 years and I didn't know where commas went or semicolons. So I signed up for graduate school to give it a shot to see, like, hey, what could happen? And very quickly, I fell in love with graduate school because it was all about researching problems and finding solutions. And it wasn't about memorizing and studying stuff, it was about research, and it was fantastic. Ironically, when I was in some of my darkest days, that was the semester where my assignment was action research. So they said, find an area where current practices are not best practices, research them, and help develop better practices. This was fall of 2015, and so I reached out to our fire department safety chief, who was a pretty good friend of mine, and asked him if he could come up with something that maybe I could research to benefit the Raleigh Fire Department. I didn't think that it would be anything to do with mental health. I suspected it would be, you know, ladders, board versus fog, maybe something with RIP procedures, fire ground procedures. But he came back and asked me to look at firefighter suicide. And my first thought was like, oh, shit, what does he know? Because that's when the thought had been coming across my mind. And I ran across a couple of articles quickly that resonated with me. Dr. Sabia, she is a psychologist in North Carolina. And in 2007, she published a dissertation on firefighter suicide. And it spoke to me because she didn't just talk about PTSD and bad calls. She talked about organizational problems, relationships. She had a whole section on women. And she utilized Dr. Joyner's theory that humans need to have purpose and they need to feel connected to others in order to thrive. And when people feel disconnection, when people don't have meaningful relationships, that can really impact them. And I remember sitting there like, oh my gosh, this is why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. And there was one thing that she put in there that really spoke to me. She said that often our over reliance on trauma and PTSD further silences people who are having other struggles and makes them feel that their struggles are not worthy. And that really spoke to me because in that time I was really depressed, but I was also simultaneously humiliated. The reason I was so depressed was because I was being harassed or bullied. I don't know which term to use. I don't think it fits either one, but I was being mistreated and that made me depressed. And I felt that was so silly considering all the problems other people were facing in the world. But it spoke to me when she said that that further drives people into silence when they feel that what they're experiencing is not worthy of even opening up. She also included data there. She looked at death certificates of every North Carolina professional firefighter from 1984 to 1999. And that's where the data that a firefighter was three times more likely to die by suicide was revealed. So, taking how what she wrote spoke to me, looking at the data, I was like, man, suicide is a problem in the fire service. And it's not just me. Like, I'm not crazy. Other people are struggling. And it kind of put me on this mission. I had this purpose. I was going to figure out what was going on and I was going to help find a solution like I was like I got into that research like with the purpose of solving the suicide problem and I think from there it's just snowballed the more I've learned the more I've been able to connect I've slowly learned so much more about my experience why it led me that way it's amazing have you ever read the book the body keeps the score No oh that book is fantastic it's a really incredible book about the mind and trauma but one of the cool things about it is when it speaks of trauma It talks about how, I'm going to see if I can use this word correctly, ubiquitous. Yeah, it talks about how trauma is everywhere. It's not just bad things that you see. It can be anything from grief, loss, bullying. Trauma is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And there was one specific line in that book, and it said, if you didn't feel loved as a child. And so I kind of reverted back to my childhood. And my parents loved me. And they were good parents, but they were very strict parents, and they didn't convey that they loved me very much. As a child, and still to this day, if you're around me, you'll see, I am the poster child for ADHD sometimes. I'm very hyper. I go from one idea to another sometimes. I'm getting better with mindfulness. The practice of mindfulness is really helping. But I was an ADHD kid who was a tomboy in a Muslim family, so I was just a huge disappointment. I was getting in trouble at school a lot. I was out riding on a bike, hanging out with the boys coming home dirty, not living up to their standards. So growing up, I didn't remember being told, I love you. And I remember trying to beg my dad to say it sometimes. I got to be like, dad, I love you. Repeating it multiple times, trying to force him to say it back. But some of the memories of my youth were constantly disappointing my parents. My dad, his favorite saying was, if you don't change, you'll never be anything. You're going to be worthless and useless. It was the tough love. They were like trying the tough love. So I didn't realize how that impacted me. And I didn't realize that even the situation that I was in at the firehouse, where that individual treated me like crap, that he made me feel the same way that my parents made me feel when I was a child, and how those feelings were connected, and the feeling of unworthiness, of being a failure, of deserving this treatment. So it took a lot of years for me to even understand myself and the feelings that I had, and how I didn't have to be depressed in that time. If I would have understood that the way Tim treated me, wasn't a reflection of me, but a reflection of him. Um, It could have saved me a little bit of grief. But all in all, I was so grateful for the path that I was on, for the process of all the research that I did, because I learned so much about firefighter suicide. I know you're huge into peer support, and every bit of the data that I looked at, every bit of the research I looked at pointed to peer support because it pointed to the need for people to be able to open up about their struggles without holding back. I think sometimes one of the biggest problems is people feel so much shame and so much humiliation around their experiences that sometimes they open up, but they leave out the parts that they need to express the most because they're afraid of expressing those things. So that's kind of what set me on that path and what got me to try to create strong working peer support teams. And then again, the timing of things. So at that same time, I had this awesome friend, the guy who ended up marrying my cousin, the friend from my academy. He was such a good friend. And it was amazing how in the time when I was most depressed, I was acting out in a weird way. I was pushing away the people that cared about me the most. I pushed away, I think my dad and my sister, I got in a fight with them at that time too. But Brian and Hanati, who were like two of the closest people in my life, we got in like the stupidest fight and I pushed them away. And now looking back, I think I know why I was pushing people away because I hated myself and I didn't want anybody that was close to me to see what I saw in myself. So I didn't want them around me. But Brian would call every week and I would send him into voicemail a lot. Or if I answered, he'd be like, hey, you know, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, I'm really busy, but I'm good. And I'd get off the phone quickly. But one day he called and I was really in the dumps. Work was really difficult that week. I felt really alone and I was sad and I was desperate for connection. And he called at the right time. And when he called, I just let it all go. I told him everything that was going on. I told him what was happening at work, how it was making me feel. And his response was just amazing. He said, man, that fucking sucks. I hate that you're going through this. You don't deserve it. It was so simple. Those words told me like, yeah, this does suck. And then he told me like I didn't deserve it. And this whole time, I felt like I had deserved it. And so just having him tell me somebody that I respect, somebody that knows me well, tell me that I didn't deserve it just meant so much. And I always think back to that conversation. I think back to him when thinking about peer support, because it just really solidified how powerful it is to have somebody validate your feelings and to communicate with you without judgment and just be able to listen.
0: Yeah, we're lucky when we can find those healthy relationships.
2: Oh, absolutely. I always think back to Brian and teaching peer support and talking about peer support, because it's not really about teaching somebody to be a peer, because some people have it so naturally. It's about giving them a few extra tools. But Brian, he had it so naturally, like he was a peer supporter with zero training, but he did it perfectly.
0: Did you struggle with the other side of the spectrum that might have created unhealthy relationships where people that showed you any kind of love or attention or acceptance that you got drawn in that way? Did it take time for the pendulum to swing for you to find balance?
2: Oh, absolutely. I realized that All my years, I was constantly looking for somebody to give me affirmation, I guess. So I wouldn't say unhealthy relationships, but I relied on other people too much. I held people in high esteem and put certain people on pedestals. Even at work, having that supervisor appreciate me and appreciate my work.
0: What is QPR and how did you get involved with them? What's your role and what does the work entail?
2: So I got lucky again. I've had a period of luckiness, I guess. When I did my first bit of research on suicide prevention, before that, I had met Bobby Halton, who's the education director for FDIC. He's also the editor of fire engineering. And I had met him at FDIC the year before I had gotten a scholarship. And I can't remember why or how, but I remember in the course of a conversation, suicide had come up and I could tell that he was passionate about understanding suicide. So when I finished my research, I sent him a copy of it and said, hey, this is what I did. I just want to share it with you. And he thought it was awesome. And he was like, uh, we're going to publish this. I wasn't even expecting that, but that was really cool. So that's when I had my first article published. And then the next year on a whim, I was like, I'm going to apply to teach at FDIC. What's the worst that can happen? I had never even taught the class yet, by the way. So I wrote up a proposal to teach a class at FDIC and I got accepted because again, in 2015, suicide in the fire service was not the hot subject that it is today. So not a lot of people were putting in to teach that. So I taught my first class at FDIC in 2017, and I started teaching more. I knew the content that I was teaching was good because it was all evidence-based. I didn't even talk about my experiences. I presented it as a graduate student researcher, never as somebody who had had an experience with these thoughts and it was based on Dr. Sabia's research. It was based on Dr. Joyner's work. It was all evidence-based. So I knew I was teaching a good program. So as the years went on, I was getting asked to do it more. And I just, for some reason, felt this need to have an alignment with some professional organization teaching it. Because I think it's such an important subject and such an important topic that I don't want to appear to be freelancing. So I stumbled across QPR and I did their train-the-trainer course, and I liked their work. It was all, again, evidence-based. It was good research, good data. One of the things that I've noticed over the years is there are other people teaching this and trying to help with this, and they're doing an awful job. They're putting out bad messaging. They're putting out bad data. They're interpreting data incorrectly, and it burns me up. It frustrates me to no end. So when I came across QPR, and although their material is a bit outdated, it is all based on such good science. I took their train-the-trainer. I became a QPR uh, gatekeeper instructor, which I felt gave me just a little more validity to continue what I'm doing. But also with that, it expanded some of my work on suicide because they have programs for churches, programs for youth, programs for public safety, programs for elderly. So they had several different types of programs. I don't do a lot with them. I think I more got the certification just to have that affiliation with a national organization teaching good material. But I am able to teach community groups, which is really cool because, for example, the Muslim community, we have a really awesome youth group and youth organizations today. And one of the things I'm so proud of is they're talking about mental health and they want to talk about suicide. For me growing up, I was always told that anybody who dies by suicide or thinks about suicide is a sinner and is going to hell because God gave you life. And if you take it away, you've committed the ultimate sin. So I'm really proud of like, the Muslim community for recognizing that it's pain that somebody's experiencing. It's a mental health disorder. So they want to bring more awareness to it. It's neat to be able to be affiliated with QPR. So that way I could teach to youth groups. What it stands for is question, persuade, and refer. And all the research I've done on suicide and all the data I've looked at, we found that there are no single interventions that work for all people. And that's the frustrating and sad thing of it all. But what they did find is one thing that can help all people is asking. So there's a myth for some people, and they think that if you're worried about somebody and you ask them if they're thinking about suicide, that you might implant the idea in their head. But what the data has found is that's the furthest thing from the truth. There's no way That asking the question will implant the idea, but what it might actually do is give that person who's thinking about it, who's suffering in silence, give them an opportunity to open up. And through my experience, through the research, what I found is a lot of people, especially people who are suffering in silence, are kind of walking around with this mask on that says, I'm okay and everything's good. But the longer they wear that mask, the heavier it gets and the more difficult it is. And for a lot of them, what's fascinating is they're desperate for somebody to notice that it's a mask. They're desperate for somebody to see a chink in the armor. And it's almost a relief when somebody does because it gives them the right and the opportunity to open up about their struggles. And we've heard that over and over again, that by having the courage to ask somebody and just tell them, you know, hey, I've noticed this, this, and this. I'm worried about you. Are you thinking about suicide? By doing that, you're giving them the right to open up. And especially if the relationship that you have with that person is a relationship where trust exists, where they feel comfortable with you, you can give them the right to open up. And by opening up, that's the first step to healing. Because from there, they're able to find solutions that are not suicide. For people thinking about suicide, the overriding thought is how much pain that they're in and what a burden they feel. They can't see the other solutions. They don't know those exist. So that's the neat thing about QPR is it's all about teaching people um, how to ask that really difficult question and then how to persuade them to go to those resources. So it starts with the Q, the question, and then that second piece is persuade. And then the last piece is refer. So a strong piece for a QPR instructor is to know the resources available and to help persuade that person to get connected to those.
0: Who have your mentors and guides been so far?
2: Like we said earlier, you know, (laughs) as an adult, I was always looking for filling that deep void. But I've just had so many mentors I'm grateful for. One that I'll never forget was, of course, a high school teacher when I was in 11th grade. Up until that point, like I said, I had the ADHD. I was classified learning disabled, and I never understood why. It just said written and oral expression. So I also thought that I was dumb up until that age. And that year was the first year where honors classes were what normal kids took. And if you weren't in an honors class, you were in remedial class. And I remember starting that year and I was in what appeared to be a remedial class because I looked around and it was all the thugs and it was all the troublemakers. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't belong. And I can't remember why or how, but I went to Mr. Page to ask for permission to take his honors history class. There's something about him. He made me feel like he believed that I wasn't dumb and that I could do it. And he basically was like, I'll let you in my class, but you can't let me down. And so that was like a turning point for me in my life because I wanted to not let him down. And that was like the first time where I applied myself. So I started taking honors classes then. And it's neat. I still have my yearbook and have what he wrote. I've run into him a few times since. He's retired from the school system, of course. And he drives one of those Rickshaw bicycles around downtown. So I'll run into him and talk to him. And I don't even know if he knows what an influence he's had on me in my life. Because up until that point, I had never gone home and did homework. I just thought that I was dumb and I was incapable of learning. So I never tried. He definitely was the first influence. And it was just something as simple as giving me a chance and believing in me. And from there, I've had so many Most recently, Chief DeGreis in the Chicago Fire Department. He does a lot of mental health. And as I started getting involved in teaching, I reached out to him. We stay in touch quite regularly. A lot of the papers that I write or ideas I have, I send to him first. And he's just so brutally honest. (laughs) He has no problem saying, this is terrible. Even when we first started teaching peer support in North Carolina, the reason we created our own program was because we couldn't afford to have peer support classes. The IAFF now is like $9,000. We were able to bring the Illinois team and they were $5,000, but that was kind of one of those one-time things to bring them in. And we knew we needed more training. So I took the IAFF class a couple times, but I had to go out of state because there's nobody in North Carolina having it. And Illinois, when they came, they gave us their material and they were like, you can create your own off of this. So after taking the Illinois class and the IAFF class, Illinois gave me their material. I kind of made it relevant for us. But I didn't change a lot because I was afraid to change a lot. I didn't want to make a lot of changes. I didn't trust myself. And it's so funny. I remember when we finished it, I, I just happened to be in Chicago. So I sat down with Chief DeGreis and showed him the PowerPoints. And he was like, you're going to teach this? And I was like, yeah. And he pointed to these things and pointed out like why it was a bad idea. And I'm so grateful for it now because I look back at that and that wasn't the right material for me to be teaching. So he gave me the confidence to create our own program. And so after I edited it and created the own program, sent it back to him, He really likes it. And since then, we've taught advanced peer support at the firemanship days in Portland. And that's been awesome because he's given me a chance to create modules. So we created some advanced modules on assessments and on treatment considerations. Not to brag, but I think that the two-day class that we have in North Carolina is the best out there because I've just taken all the best and put them together. That's amazing. Yeah, It's neat to have somebody like that to kind of push you to create something better through just saying something so bluntly as, you're going to teach this.
0: (laughs) Well, it's better to hear that from one person than hear it from everybody once you've released it.
2: Yeah, exactly. And honestly, like, I don't think other people would have said it was bad because unfortunately, he knows so much more about this topic than anybody else because he's been doing it so long. So I just think that we would have missed our mark in teaching the programming. Because looking back, I mean, it was good stuff, but it was missing so much. There was no action planning in it. It talked about two types of therapies that I don't even talk about because the reason they were in the Illinois program is because the clinician teaching it, it's what she used, but they're very rare. I've never seen them since. So, I think the class that we have now, when people finish taking it, they feel like they have tools, whereas the other two-day class would have just given them a lot of information, but not quite the tools to use.
0: Tell me about your chlorine exposure and what you learned from that. I
2: don't know if I'll put that out there for everybody, but no, it's just funny because my Facebook profile picture, if you zoom in on me, you'll see the discoloration in my shirt, and that is from chlorine. So we were dispatched to a smoke investigation. It was near a rest home. And the notes said it was dark gray smoke. And we were like, that'd be so cool if it's a structure fire and we're the only ones dispatched. We'll get to do some work. When we pulled up, we saw smoke at the end of this rest home, which was four stories. And we saw it up at the top, but it almost looked like it could be steam because it was just so light. It had rained that day. So it also looked like maybe there were people doing construction and it was just dust coming up. It could have been so many different things we didn't know. So we pulled in, hopped off the truck and started to walk to it. And immediately I felt an irritant. I didn't smell chlorine yet, but I felt an irritant in my throat. So we just got out of there and called for like a full hazmat assignment. So we started trying to find the source. So we started walking up the street on the outside to figure out where it was coming from. And there was an auto repair shop there. I walked around the corner and I walked right into where there was a cylinder with the valve off. This white fume was coming out of it. And I got one big breath of it and it was a serious irritant. Like it was awful. And I stepped back out. I went to the guys at the auto repair shop and I was like, hey, um, what is in that cylinder? And they were like, it's Argon. And I'm like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, 100% sure it's Argon. So I ran back to the truck, grabbed the ERG, looked up Argon. It said it was an irritant. So basically like the feeling that I got, it described it. I don't know why I didn't smell chlorine. I'll be honest, because I should have smelled it. But our PPE, it was good enough. It was sufficient for argon. So masked up and put on our PPE. And we went back to see if we could find the valve to turn it off. But when we got closer to it, there was no valve. I spent like an extra minute or so looking around to see if maybe it had blown off and it was close by and I could screw it on. I guess I wanted to get it sealed off before the hazmat units got there. Like I wanted to solve the problem before the chiefs and the hazmat units got there. Sometimes in the back of your head. You feel like it's going to be something so small and somebody else is going to get there and be like, you idiot. Like, how did you miss that? (laughs) But we couldn't find a valve. We screwed around with it for a little while. So finally, you know, all the hazmat units, the chiefs got there. And then the wind direction changed and where everybody was sitting, it moved it to where they were sitting. And we all were like, that's chlorine. That is very strong chlorine. We were really lucky because especially when we first walked up on it, because literally when I went around the back of that car shop, we didn't see Smoke coming out. We didn't see fumes or anything. And literally, as soon as I stepped around, I stepped right into it and I took that big breath. And that could have been so dangerous. So we were really lucky about that. For me, I think two of the biggest lessons, of course, is we all know how dangerous hazmats are. And so I don't need to have that mentality of let me get this shit turned off before the doubts be gets there. I need to have the mentality of let's protect ourselves and the people around us. And I asked that guy, "What is it?" He said, "Argon." I said, "Are you sure?" He's like, "Yeah." I wish I had spent a little bit more time ensuring that he was sure because later he kind of retracted so I wish I had spent more time talking to him and ensuring that he knew what it was because it wasn't labeled and it was in the back just thrown out it's definitely like a little bit of a scary moment because for about four hours after that I couldn't stop coughing and they were thinking I was gonna have to go to the hospital luckily the coughing slowed down and I started to do better and everything was okay so it's just a reminder that you can't get too complacent you know this was like a residential area just unexpected events and even afterwards my crew was like hey so you know in the future we need to make sure like we're wearing our air packs and everything cuz when we jumped off of that smoke investigation we weren't even wearing air packs you know we had our gear on but no air packs
0: let me finish off with you with some standard questions and you can expand on the why of them as much as you want all right shared dorms or separate rooms
2: sometimes i joke and say the only reason i got promoted was for a separate room <laughs> so <laughs> I hate shared dorms. And for years, I lost hours of sleep I could have had when we weren't running calls because of snoring or flashing TVs. Luckily, where I'm at right now, they remodeled the station and I've got my own separate dorm. Side note, I do a lot of research now on sleep because it's amazing the connection between sleep and mental health and then every other bit of health. And every firehouse should have separate dorms, every firehouse.
0: Eat together or every firefighter for themselves?
2: Eat together, for sure.
0: Have you been with any crews that don't do that?
2: Yeah, and it's so sad. And our crew, for a little while, you know, you have one guy trying to be healthy, one guy trying to save money. And I understand. But when we eat together, it is just the team process of figuring out what we're going to make, cooking together, sitting together. There's something about that. There's something really special about that experience. And I even had one captain, he explained, you know, Your diet is not more important than our family, and you can reduce your portion sizes so that you can be a part of the family, and that makes a lot of sense to me. The erosion of crew dinners is just the start of the separation of our crews, so I always try to keep us together, eating together, and I'm going to tell you, sometimes it gets hard. We have an engine and a ladder where I'm at. The engine's what I'm on, and my guys, they like to cook good food, which means it's not healthy. The ladder, two out of their four are keto. And it sucks because not only are they just meat eaters with the same exact no-carb vegetables, but they don't even put flavoring. Any sort of flavoring might have one or two carbs, so they avoid it. So it does get hard. Like I so bad want to just bring my own meals on the days that they cook. But if one person pulls out, then other people will. So I try to just hold us together, even through cabbage for the 10th time in three months.
0: (laughs) Rotating positions or know your role and stay in your
2: lane? Definitely like knowing your role and staying in your lane. There's already too much for firefighters to know from hazmat to medical to the firefighting. And when I was on our special operations team, I was on an engine, but also doing the ropes and confined space and trench. And I felt like I was never good at one thing because I was trying so hard to be competent at everything. Right now, I'm not on the special operations team anymore. I'm just an engine captain, and it's still so much to learn. My guys, they love firefighting. They love being good at pulling lines. They love being quick. But I realized that in doing that, we've sacrificed our EMS skills. We had a trauma the other day, and my firefighter made a couple mistakes that I wish that I had prepared him not to make. So I definitely think know your role and be really good at it.
0: I liked how you... Owned that statement as a captain and said, I didn't prepare them to not make the mistakes.
2: Yeah, I think as a captain, the only way to be good is to own the mistakes of the crew. And it's true because I realized that we hadn't done any training on traumas in a while. We've sat down and talked about the protocol and the criteria, but we didn't actually physically do a rapid trauma assessment and a movement to the backboard. He ran up with the backboard but didn't have head blocks. So that delayed that process. And the person had a pretty bad bleed that turned out to be arterial, and we missed that initially, and we shouldn't have missed that.
0: Speaking of the word ubiquitous you used earlier, one thing for sure is certain crews not training their rookies or the crew in general for the real things they need to know, and then expecting them to perform well on scene.
2: Absolutely. For me as a captain, it's been a really enjoyable process having a firefighter right out of the academy. I had him now for two years and watching his growth there have been a few times where he did things. And initially, I was like, you idiot. But then I realized, man, how would he have known? Like uh, about six months online, it was like three in the morning. And we were just moving a patient from a bed to the stretcher. And he was up at the head. And I just assumed that he knew how to grab the sheets inside the patient over. But he didn't. And he totally didn't even think about the head and just grabbed down below and patient's head fell down and it was the ugliest transfer I've ever seen. And at first in my head, I was like, oh my God, what an idiot. But then when we got back, I was like, hey, we need to practice that. I need to show you how to do that because I just realized I've never shown you how to do that.
0: And I guess that ties into what you said before about us trying to be master of all things.
2: Yeah. I don't know if you've seen this, but I've seen this where when we have so many things that we're supposed to know, it makes it easier for people not to even try to know any of them.
0: Oh, for sure.
2: It's like, ah, I could figure it out on the fly, so I'm not even going to waste my time. There's no point.
0: It's like you overwhelm the computer and then you get the spinning wheel of death because it just can't buffer at all.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's definitely easy to get there. It's easy to sit there and say, ah, you know, what's the point? We haven't done it just a little bit every day. That's what we try to focus on.
0: Crew workers or solo?
2: This is a very, very difficult subject for me right now. Touchy subject, because I love crew workouts. And like I said, I have probably the best crew in the city. I love these guys to death, but they will not work out with me. And it breaks my heart. I actually got mad at one of them this week for that, because he hasn't been working out. And this week he decides to work out, but he won't do it with me. And I think it's because the one time one of the guys worked out with me, we had burpees. And so they won't do it. (laughs) It hurts. I just, I just want a crew workout.
0: (laughs) I love those shirts that say burpees don't love you either.
2: (laughs) Right? Yeah. And like I said, the workout yesterday, it was just for every minute, but oh my gosh, I see, I see why people hate them, but I also see why they're so good because with street parking about once or twice a week, there's a workout and I try to talk myself out of finishing it. There was one last week that was five rounds and through round two, I was like, this is really bad. If I get to three, I'll be happy. And then I was like, if I get to four, I'll be happy. But then I end up finishing. And I think just that little bit of mental training helps you to know that you have more and you can keep going. And I wish I could convey that to my guys. I know y'all think some of these circuit workouts are hard and dumb, but they're just so good for you, not just physically, but mentally.
0: Yeah. Rogan calls it conquering your inner bitch.
2: Yeah. yeah, We play volleyball. We have a volleyball net and they convinced me that volleyball is exercise because <laughs> I got tired of seeing people just sit on their recliner through workout time. So as a captain, I have some written expectations and one of them was exercise 30 minutes a day. doesn't matter what it is. And so they have convinced me that volleyball is exercise and I can't really argue with them. But as being a captain, I want to be so good that I can convince them to do it without making them do it. But I just can't do it. I've even tried having a one-on-one, like, hey, it would mean a lot to me if we would work out together as a crew. I just want you to know that. And that wasn't enough.
0: <laughs> a smooth bore or fog nozzle?
2: Is that even a question?
0: It is for a lot of people. It may not be for you and me.
2: Well, all we run are fogs. And it burns me up because I wish we ran smooth bores. We have two inch on the back of our truck. I would love to have an inch and sixteenth tip back there.
0: So I guess that leads us to two and a half inch line interior, exterior, or both?
2: Both. We have two inch and three inch. Our three inches exterior and our two inches interior. The way our two inches set up right now, it actually beats us up because we do have an inch and an eighth tip on it, but that tip's not designed for that line. So managing that line is the butt kicker. Our manpower, we're only at three, and I've heard enough smart people say it doesn't matter what your manpower is. But when you just have three and it's just you and the other guy, it's definitely a challenge.
0: And you have to keep your head up and run the radio.
2: Oh my gosh, right? Carry the tools, make sure you have water gain, all that stuff. We've done training and we try to reinforce and remind that don't pull a second line until that first line is in place. And knowing that most of our companies ride three, a good second in company will go help that first in company on their line. But we never do that. We always grab a second line. We always try to race them. We have very bad habits that we can perpetuate. I'm trying to
0: have that conversation in my department as well. Yeah. Okay, let's finish off with truck, engine, or rescue.
2: I'm on an engine now, so I'd have to say engine. I mean, granted, if I was on a structure fire, engine is the way to go. I would, though, like to move to a truck in the next couple years. I was on a truck right before I made Driver, and I enjoyed that work. I enjoyed the problem-solving and the extrication and the roof work. But right now I'm on an engine and it's definitely a place to be for a fire. So I'm all about it. But our trucks don't run medical calls. So last night, every hour when we got up for some medical call and our truck slept, uh, there were a couple times where in my head, I was like, it'd be really cool to be on a truck.
1: Right.
0: <laughs> this was awesome. You did amazing.
2: Awesome. Thank you. No, I'm glad we finally made this happen. I, we started talking about this in January.
0: Right. <laughs>
2: this was a fun conversation. You kept me on track.